All right. Well, thank you, James, Samantha, for leading us in worship today and the others. Uh, Lauren is off enjoying a little bit of vacation time, and so it's great to have people who can step in. Would you take your Bibles and turn to 1 Peter chapter 2? We're going to be continuing our study in this uh, book that we've been looking at in the Scriptures. And I know some of you may have seen the title of the sermon today in the bulletin and wondered, you know, the Christian response to government. I mean, that maybe doesn't seem like a message for right after Christmas to begin the new year talking about this, but it's where we've come to in our text. And that is actually one of the benefits of going through the scriptures, a book at a time like this, where you hit all of the subjects that are there because all of Scripture is profitable for us to study, and it is very applicable that we look at a topic like this today. So I'm going to read it for us. The passage we're looking at is verses 13 to 17, and then we'll move into the text. Peter writes, Submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men, whether to the king as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. Live as free men, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as servants of God. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the brotherhood of believers. Fear God. Honor the king. Let's pray. Father, as we look to your word this morning, would you again open our eyes to see the truth of what is here, to see how it applies to our life that we might live as good citizens in this world. And we pray that in your name. Amen. When I was younger, I was involved with uh, scouts for a few years, both Cub Scouts and then into Boy Scouts for a short time. And some of you may have been involved in scouting too. And if you were, uh, these words are going to be familiar to you. You'll probably remember the Boy Scout oath that begins like this, that on my honor, I will do my best to do my duty to God and my country. And I've always liked that statement. That's just part of that oath, but I like that statement. I think it captures well what God wants us to do in terms of our relationship both in this world to the country where we live and our responsibility to him. And the thing that stands out to me in that statement is the word duty. As a society, we don't talk a lot about duties and responsibilities anymore. We talk more about individual rights and personal freedoms. You know, it's, it's about me. It's about what am I going to get out of this or what's in it for me? And we've developed this kind of mindset that is so individual that it affects the way we look at government, the way we look at education, community, and sometimes even the church. And I don't know the origin of the Boy Scout oath, but at least part of it could have come from a text like the one we are going to look at this morning. As a Christian, we have a duty both to God and to the nation in which we live. We are citizens of heaven, but we are also citizens on this earth. And we are to live as good citizens in a way that reflects well upon God as our creator. What makes this passage, though, even more fascinating to me is the context in which Peter is writing. 
At the time that he is writing, he is uh, living under Roman rule. And he is writing to Christians in what would have been like northern Turkey, that area uh, in today's world or on our map. And their king was one of the most brutal and cruel leaders ever to live. It was Nero. They were living under the emperor Nero. And, you know, we may from time to time uh, question things that our government decides that we're supposed to do, or we may disagree with our president or leaders from time to time, but it was nothing like what they were going through. And I can imagine these believers going, Peter, what should we do? Peter, how are we to respond to the government? Do we just sort of pull back and live in isolation and hope they stay far, far away from us? Are we supposed to uh, be obedient to the things that they ask us? Are we supposed to take up arms and rebel? What is it? How do we respond to the state? And Peter's answer here is really clear and succinct. In verse 13, he says, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake, to every authority instituted among men, whether to the king or to governors, etc., etc. If I were to put this sermon in a sentence, here's what I would say. That out of respect for God, we are to submit to the authorities God has placed over us. Out of respect for God, we are to submit to the authorities that God has placed over us. There are exceptions to that statement. There are times when what God asks and what a nation or a governor or a king may ask that are in conflict. And we're going to talk about that today, but this is the general principle that we are to follow as Christians living in this world. So we're going to unpack that a little bit step by step as we go through this text this morning. Number one, a Christian is to be submissive. So what does that mean? What does it mean to submit? What's that word exactly mean? Well, the word in Greek is hupotasso. It originally was a military term, and it means to rank under. In the military, if you are under someone in rank, you need to follow those orders that you are given. You don't kind of get to decide what you want to do every day and say, you know, I think I'll do this today or that today. No, you follow the orders that you are given by your commanding officer. And so you are under the authority of someone to whom you owe allegiance or loyalty. That's what this word submit means. And Peter's going to apply it in many different areas. Sadly, submission is a word that makes many people bristle today. Uh, There are, for example, wives who when they hear that wives are to be submissive to husbands, they don't like that. It makes them bristle. And there are men who, when they hear that they are to be submissive to their boss, they don't like that. They want to be their own boss. That's sort of the way that we feel. We want to do our own thing. We don't want anybody to tell us what to do or have to follow instructions. And I think that attitude comes from our own pride as well as from situations where there has been an abuse of authority. It's a whole lot easier to follow someone that you respect and feel confident in than it is to follow someone that you totally disagree with. And that happens probably more than we would like. Isaac Asimov made this statement that I think captures well what our attitude is from time to time. He said that people who think they know everything are really annoying to those of us who do. 
You know, there's a little bit of truth in that, isn't it? You know, that when we look at the world, if we were king, you know, or in charge, we'd do it this way. And, you know, we disagree from time to time with the way things are done. We get annoyed by that. And yet Peter will use this word submit four times in this letter. Four times. And this is the start of it. He tells us that we are to submit to our leaders in government in verse 13. He'll talk about uh, a work situation for them. He was addressing slaves and masters, and he said that they were to be submissive to their masters, or we would say to our employer or our boss. In the third category, he's going to talk about marriage and the family. He's going to say that wives are to be submissive to husbands or children to parents. And in the fourth category, he's going to relate it to the church. And he's going to say that young men should be submissive to older men or to the elders, those who are in authority in the church. So you look at those four areas. I mean, government, work, home, church. Those are four major areas of our life where he is talking about submission and being under the authority of someone else who is a leader, who has been placed there in charge. Our example in all of this is Jesus. He's going to bring Jesus right into the middle of this. Jesus, the Son of God who lived his life in submission to his Father. We read in the Scriptures that Jesus humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. None of us have made that kind of sacrifice. He said, Jesus said, I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. It wasn't all about me for Jesus. It was about doing God's will, and he was obedient to that. He even went so far as to say that I do nothing on my own, but I speak just what the Father has taught me. I don't even say what I want to say. I say what the Father has told me or what he wants me to say to you. And even when he was treated unjustly, Peter points to Jesus as our example, and he says that we should follow in his steps, that we should entrust ourselves to God who judges justly. Now imagine how that sounded to people living under Roman rule with Nero in charge. Peter, you're telling me that I'm supposed to listen. I'm supposed to obey I'm supposed to respect those who are in authority over me. I mean, that just sounds crazy at times. You know, when you think about what was going on in that world, you're going, really? I mean, this just doesn't make sense. Why would he want us to do that? And what is this all about? Well, we move on in the text, and he tells us that a Christian is to be submissive to every authority instituted among men. <laughs> That's a pretty broad statement, isn't it? A Christian is to be submissive to every authority instituted among men. That's the heading for all of these different categories that he's going to move into. And here, specifically, he narrows it down to talk about the king, like Nero. For us, it would be the president or those who are in our Congress. And he's talking about governors. For them, you can think of governors like Pontius Pilate, who was placed as a governor over Judea in that area. Or for us, it would be more like our state and our local governments and to be submissive to them. 
You could also include our legal system, our judges, the courts, whose role in society is to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do what is right. That is the role of government. Each of these authority figures have been placed in our life by God for our good. They are there to keep order in our world, and we need that. Can you imagine, for example, what it would be like to live in Syria at this time, where there is so much conflict, where there is this fighting back and forth between the rebels and the government, and it's really um, you know, appalling at times what you see on the news of what is coming out of that. And even this whole question of the use of chemical weapons and destroying and killing your own people. I mean, when the government turns like that on its own people, you can understand this uh, rebellion that rises up and says that this is not right. But if you're trying to raise your family and go to work and live a normal life in that kind of world, you can't do that. Everything changes. That's why we need government that is just and good and that protects and gives us the freedoms that we enjoy to simply live and worship and work and care for our family. But even on a more personal level, we also need order and routine in our lives, and that's good. This past week, we had a fun week with all of our kids and our grandchildren at home. And uh, we have three grandchildren, and, you know, they came up from Kansas and driving up. And those of you who have situations like that, what happens, though, when you move little kids out of their home? You know, it's, it's different. It was a little bit of chaos at our house, you know, with sleeping arrangements, and schedules get off, and routines get off. And these little guys, they need their naps, they need their meals, they need bedtime. But they don't want to miss out on anything because there's so much fun going on that they're wanting to stay up, you know, and be part of it. And they get a little crabby at times. Or you can see where they need some sleep and they need some order and routine once again. We are like that. There's a need for law and order in our world. There's a need for order in our homes, in our school, and in the church. And the Apostle Paul would go so far as to even say that to rebel against that order is to rebel against the God who placed them there, that he has placed them there for our good. And if government steps out of line, out of the will of God, they will answer to him one day. And we as individuals are also going to be held accountable for the choices that we make. But there are limits here to our obedience to government. And I would put it like this, that we are to be submissive to the authorities over us to the extent that they do not ask us to violate the law of God. We're to be submissive to the extent that they do not ask us to violate the law of God. One of the clearest examples of kind of Christian uh, rebellion, if you will, is found in the book of Acts. It's when, uh, shortly after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, Peter, John, the other apostles were preaching in Jerusalem. They're in the temple courts, and they're talking about what has happened, and they are preaching about Jesus, his death and resurrection, and the authorities don't like that because they're the bad guys in this situation. They're the ones who put Jesus to death, and now these men are saying he is alive and he is Lord and God. 
And so what did they do? They arrested them. They had them flogged, beaten. They brought them in and they commanded them to no longer speak in the name of Jesus. And how did they reply? In Acts 5.29, Peter said, we must obey God rather than men. That when it came to preaching the gospel, to talking about Jesus, their commitment was clear that we must obey God rather than men. You know, those things come up even in our day. I had the privilege one time to uh, open in prayer at the state capitol. And it was interesting to me that just before I was going to do that prayer, one of the guys who was there who met with me said, there's just one thing, please don't mention the name of Jesus. You know, he wanted sort of a, a neutral, generic prayer. I had that situation locally in our community once, too, when I uh, was at the Rotary Club, you know, and they asked me if I would pray, and they said, please don't mention Jesus. You know, this is kind of broader, more universal. We just want a generic prayer. And I just said, I, I can't do that. I'm, I'm a minister of Christ. I'm a minister of the gospel. I, I can't do that. And what puzzles me about this is, why do we ask Christians to change? Why do we ask Christians to change? You know, if someone was a Muslim and they were going to pray, would you say to them, don't use the name Allah? You know, you would almost expect them, wouldn't you, to pray to Allah because that's who they are. That's what they do. Or if, if someone is, uh, you know, in, in Judaism and they wear a skull cap, you wouldn't ask them to not wear a skull cap because that's offensive to me for some reason. I mean, it seems more appropriate that whatever faith someone is, let's just let them be who they are, including let's let Christians be Christians and talk about Jesus because he's the one who gave his life for us. And the early church got into trouble over things like that as well because the early church would not say Caesar is Lord. They would not take that oath and say that Caesar is Lord and we owe our highest loyalty to him. They would not participate in the sacrifices to him because Jesus is Lord and our highest loyalty is to Jesus. It's why in verse 17 here in our text, Peter will say that we are to show proper respect to everyone we are to love the brotherhood of believers, we are to fear God, and we are to honor the king. And it is interesting in that series of statements, you know, he's saying we're to honor the king, or we would say we're to honor our president, we're to honor those in authority, but only God is to be feared, ultimately. Only God is to be feared, and given that place of reverence and honor. Well, thirdly, why should we honor our leaders? Well, we do it to honor God. A Christian is to be submissive to the governing authorities for the Lord's sake. For the Lord's sake. We do it as a part of our witness to Christ. The Christians in Peter's day were viewed with suspicion for all of the reasons that I mentioned. They were accused at times of treason and sedition because they wouldn't take that oath that said that Caesar is Lord. They didn't participate in the pagan festivals, the worship of idols. They weren't involved in those kind of civil uh, festivals or rites like that. And they often met in secret to worship God. 
and to celebrate the Lord's Supper because they wanted to worship freely as the scriptures taught. But they were not disloyal to the government. In fact, they were the very moral fiber that Rome needed but failed to recognize. And that's why Peter urged them in verse 12, for example, to live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. They were to go the extra mile. I know that the world doesn't understand us, doesn't understand because they do not believe in Jesus Christ, that he is Lord and God. So what we need to do as believers is really go the extra mile to live in such a way, to live such good lives that even though they accuse us of wrong, they will see the good that we do and bring to our world and they will glorify God on the day he visits us. In verse 15, he said, I want you to silence the talk of foolish men by doing good. I want you to live as free men. I don't want you to use your freedom as a cover-up for evil or to sin. I want you to live as servants of God. I want you to show proper respect to everyone as far as you can, and especially to love your brothers and sisters in Christ. Fear God and honor the king. Peter's exhortation to us is to win the world to Christ by our life. Win them by your life. Let your actions speak so loudly and clearly of the change that God has made in your life. And when you are asked about that, that's where 1 Peter 3.15 comes in, what Pastor Jason was talking about last week. Then always be ready, always be quick to give a defense for the hope that you have. Tell them about Jesus. That's how we are to live. Now let me ask the question, do Christians really make a difference in our world? And is there any evidence of that savoring influence that Christians make in our world. Well, there's an interesting book that was written that comes out of World War II. And during World War II, some 2,000 Westerners were forced into a concentration-like camp in northern China by the Japanese. The camp was called Weizin. It was, uh, the book is called Shantung Compound. It was written by Langdon Gilkey. And in this uh, compound, it was actually a Presbyterian uh, kind of church and mission post where there was this compound and the Japanese took that over. They rounded up all these Westerners, Christian, non-Christian alike, anyone who was living in China at that time, and they put them in this concentration camp. And Landon Gilkey was there, and at the time, he was a young, optimistic professor. He was not a believer. In fact, he was very skeptical of Christianity. And when he looked at the people who were kind of forced into this camp, he was impressed by their knowledge and their capabilities. And as he participated in the attempts to organize the camp, he became persuaded that the real issues of life, I mean, the real stuff that matters, are surely material and political. How we can eat, how we can keep warm, be clothed, be protected from the weather, how we can organize our common efforts to have this community work and function in these very difficult situations. He said, it was not that I thought that religion was wrong, I simply thought it was irrelevant. I mean, what real function in actual life does religion perform under conditions 
where the basic needs of life are so essential and are dealt with by techniques and organizational skill. And he thought if you just organize all the talents and gifts in this camp, then we're going to be able to function. And he said it even kind of bugged him on Sunday morning when this group of missionaries would meet to worship and he's on some errand for the housing committee and he's going, what a waste. Why aren't these people out here doing these important things that need to be done? And he went about his business. But his account of the affairs at Wazine concluded with a strange and fascinating twist. This community marvelously organized with competent skills and expertise began to come apart. Graft, corruption, open strife invaded their community. The talented experts who were able to devise systems, machines, organizations to solve practical problems weren't able to provide an ongoing sense of purpose for life or a moral imperative for people to serve one another and strive for the common benefit. He also discovered that the missionaries had a unique ability to sense and understand when they needed to respond to a need that someone else had. The people who really cared for one another were not those guys that were bent on organizing this camp. It was the missionaries who cared for one another in their need. And Landon Gilkey began to see the difference that Christ makes in a person's life. That it was the Christians who really were that savoring influence that held things together. That through Christ came to have meaning and purpose in life. Through their love for one another, were there to help. Were there to come alongside of those who were hurting. Who lifted one another up. You know, I think that's a very interesting picture of what life would be like if there were no Christ and no Christians and also the difference that Christians can really make in a world. And right now, when I look at our country, I feel like that's what's going on in America today. That there's many who think that Christianity, for example, is irrelevant. What difference does it make in our world? You know, we've got a good government, we've got good laws and order, and we can take care of everything just through our human, natural organization or rules or laws or things that we do. And they don't understand that problems of man are problems of the heart that can only be addressed by a spiritual solution by coming to Jesus Christ. And I think we're on a dangerous course where we are moving away from God and it is our role as Christians to be that savoring influence in our world, to show the difference that Jesus can make. When I was doing my study this week, I ran across an interesting article by Jonathan Edwards. And I ask in the conclusion here, what is the Christian's role in public life? What does this come down to? What is our role? And we are not the first to ask that question. In fact, Jonathan Edwards wrestled with this more than 250 years ago. He died in, the, in 1758, which would be before we even became a country. And here's what he said. He had six points that he advised his church. 
He said, number one, Christians have a responsibility to society beyond the walls of the church. God hasn't called us to just circle the wagons and live in isolation and take care of ourselves. We have a responsibility beyond the church. We are to be that savoring influence in our world. Secondly, Christians should not hesitate to join forces with non-Christians in the public square to work toward common moral goals. That there are times when we do join hand in hand to care for the poor, to feed the hungry, to make our community a better place to live. And, and so it's not uh, necessary that they always be people who believe just like we do. Thirdly, he said Christians should support their government but be ready to criticize when the occasion demands. Edwards was there in that pre-revolutionary period and he understood what was going on between England and the colonists and the challenges that were there. And he said, generally, Scripture tells us we are to support our government, but there are times when things can become so burdensome that it is right for Christians to let their voice be heard. And the same would be true here. Recently, I was at a conference in Baltimore where uh, there were two senators who were speaking. One was a Democrat, one was a Republican, and they were talking about the polarization in government today. It was really interesting to hear them both speak about this. And they said, you know, one of the reasons we have this, this deadlock in government today and this polarization where we aren't getting things done is our primary process really encourages people on both extremes to get involved. You know, the extreme right, extreme left, those are the ones right now that are kind of picking the candidates and are most motivated to be involved in the process. And he said, yeah, very few of the people that are in the middle ground getting involved in that process. And so when they get elected, um, you know, you've got people that are set in terms of what they want, that don't want to compromise, and they're just butting heads together. And both were calling for more people to get involved, to understand that politics is about compromise. And even going back, one of them quoted Ronald Reagan, who said, I would rather get half of what I want or maybe two-thirds of what I want than to do absolutely nothing interesting look. And so there are times when we as Christians need to think about what should our involvement be in the process as well of electing our officials and encouraging discussion that builds bridges rather than building walls. Fourth, Christians should remember, though, that politics is comparatively unimportant in the long run. Interesting comment, isn't it? Our first responsibility is to God and to the Lord Jesus Christ. And government cannot solve every problem, nor should it be expected to. Fifth, Christians should beware of national pride. And here, you got to go back to Edwards. He's living before this country even was a nation on its own. And he is reminding us that the church is broader than any nation. And our allegiance is to God and to his church, and that transcends borders. And sixth, Christians should care for the poor. Let your light shine before men. Let it so shine that they might see your good deeds and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Our role really in this world is to be that salt and light, to pray 
to respect those in authority, to work for the good of all people, but most of all, to honor Christ in the way that we live and work in our world. Let's pray. Father, you speak to every area of life. Your word instructs us on how we should live when we are in our homes, when we are at work, when we are at school, and when we are living as citizens of this country. And Father, we thank you for the freedoms that we have enjoyed as citizens of the United States of America. Thank you for those that you brought to this country who established a government with checks and balances, who understood the sinfulness of man and the need for a check on that by this division of power. And thank you that we can participate in our government in prayer, in voting, in speaking to those who represent us in Congress in the elections that take place. And Father, I pray that you would help us to do that well. And would you, from our midst, raise up godly men and women to be a voice in those places that affect all of us. God, we thank you for them and pray that they might indeed be a savoring influence in our world for good. Help us to do that too. In Jesus' name, amen.